Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. And I'm Vivek. And today, Dan's away, also in the spirit of the holidays and this musical chairs that the three of us have been playing more recently. Guys, in the tradition of the episodes that we've also been releasing lately, we get to hear another fireside chat, if you will, with Vivek and his friend Jacob Hall for our radiation oncology episode. This is a good episode. We had a great discussion about radiation therapy. And you know what? Radiation therapy has a role. We like to say, oh my God, those toxicities, but it really does. And the last thing I want to say is that Dan, yeah, it's okay. It's the holidays or whatever. We'll give you a free pass. But let's be real. Dan tells what he wants. That that dude doesn't come all the time. So, so Dan, this is minus five points. Minus five points for Dan Housewrath. Vivek runs a tight ship around here at the Felwan call. So let's, uh, just something to note. So guys, just as an introduction, Dr. Jacob Hall is a chief resident in radiation oncology at UNC Chapel Hill. And we're so excited to share this episode with you all where he gets to talk one-on-one with Vivek about the role of radiation oncology for our prostate cancer patients. And although you guys can't see it, it's actually quite entertaining because Vivek actually recorded this episode from his wife's closet as he normally does. And Dr. Hall also happened to be in a closet at work filled with a bunch of lead in the background. And so, you know, this is perfect. This is what we strive for on the Fellow On Call. Yeah, it's the nice recording studios that we have for both us and our guests. All right, guys. So without further ado, let's roll that show. Welcome back to another episode of the Fellow On Call. I'm so excited today. We've got another guest episode in our prostate cancer series. Today, we'll be talking about radiation oncology and prostate cancer. And with me here, I've got Jacob Hall, who's a chief resident in radiation oncology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and excited to have the conversation with you. So Jacob, you know, for all of our guests, we always ask one thing, give us a fun fact about yourself. So this is a tough question. This is a tough question, but what are you going to say? Yeah, Vivek, thanks for having me. Excited to be here and to share some information in the medoc world about radiation oncology and prostate cancer. But a fun fact, that is a, a tough question. I guess the first thing that comes to mind, this is sort of a recent thing and probably more of a funny little story than a fun fact, but I like to do a lot of backpacking out in the woods and stuff at various national parks and whatever with a couple of friends. And recently I was doing this around Mount Hood, which is one of the mountains kind of right outside Portland and, and Oregon. And it was kind of a five-day trip and it was the third night of the trip just me and one other guy, you know, who I know who I'm on the trip with and close friends with. And we're in our like separate tents and about to go to sleep. And it's been dark for a few hours at this point, probably 10 o'clock at night, roughly. And I hear him sort of jingle the zipper on his tent to get inside. And I'm already inside of my tent at this point. And then I hear these footsteps kind of right next to my tent. And I'm like, Chris, are, are you in your tent or are you back outside? And he's like, no, I, I thought you left your tent to go like brush your teeth or something. I'm like, uh, no, I'm I'm inside my tent, actually. And so then these footsteps like circle my tent for like the next 30 seconds. It felt like an hour to me, like eternity. But it was very terrifying. And it's in hindsight, it was probably some like little squirrel or something. But in our minds, we thought it was this, you know, like massive mythical creature or something like Sasquatch or some big scary animal. But needless to say, we were up for like two hours kind of walking around outside looking for things. I couldn't fall back asleep. You never know, man. You never know if it's going to be like the next Ted Bundy. You don't know. 
Exactly. It sounded like it, it was uh, upright on two legs, but you know, it's probably just my imagination. And this is why we camp in groups. So this is this is the key point of this episode. Forget about everything else. You got to camp with friends. You can't be alone. If you remember anything, remember that. One other thing I just want to tell the listeners before we get in the episode really quickly. So Jacob actually came down to Nashville to hang out with me and my wife. And, you know, there's four of us. We kind of we had a good time here. And one of the best parts was, so, you know, I'm a Medonk person. He's a Radonk person. Usually we always say, hey, radiation's terrible. It's going to cause too much toxicity. And then I'm a little bit more progressive minded with that. So he's like, oh, this is cool. But the best part about what we talked about is our lifestyles. And man, Jacob, dude, the Radonk lifestyle, it's just pretty amazing. And tell me about this fireplace you got going on and your, I mean, theoretically, Jacob's working today, but he's really not. He's recording a podcast. So tell me about this fireplace situation. Priorities, right? Radonk, uh, you know, I think it's one of the best fields in medicine for a lot of reasons. But uh, one of those things is we do, you know, people say we tend to have a good lifestyle. But yeah, so I'm a PGY-5 resident at the University of North Carolina program. Currently on an, an academic day, which we have a number of those every so often, usually at least once a week, to kind of do some research and study, catch up on contours and treatment planning, which we'll probably get into at some point in this podcast. But in our resident room, where so every resident has our own like cubicle and desk, and we just got this new LED TV installed. And Ethan, uh, one of the PGY4s who's on research now, is just coming in to spread some holiday cheer this time of the year and baked a bunch of these Christmas cookies. And he's got some classic Christmas music playing on his iPad. And we've projected this fireplace up on the TV just to add to the ambiance of the lights and everything in the room. So yeah, it's a great field. <laughs> you know, warm and cozy over there in, in radiation oncology. Not too much work. Let's not work. Cancer sleeps yeah, on the weekend, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. All right, so let's let's get in the episode today. So in, in usual fashion, I'm going to start us kick us off with a case here. So we have a 74-year-old male who's referred by his primary care provider to see a urologist for difficulty urinating. A PSA was sent and it was elevated at 5.2. The patient got an MRI and underwent a 12-core biopsy and was found to have prostate adenocarcinoma in 6 out of 12 cores. On review of the pathology, the Gleason score is 4 plus 3 equals 7, so you know, grade group three. His pathology report also suggests that more than 50% of the prostate is involved by adenocarcinoma. Based on our initial discussion in our introduction episode, this patient has features that would classify him as unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer. So we just had an episode with our surgeon. We talked about the surgical management for these patients, but let's get in a little bit to how radiation oncology thinks about patients with prostate cancer. So most of the time, it's not medical oncology that really refers patients to radiation for their prostate cancer unless it's in the metastatic setting for palliative purposes. But every now and then, we may get one of these consults. So we really want our listeners from a variety of backgrounds to get a sense about how you think about things. So from your perspective as a radiation oncologist, you're getting this consult for a, a patient with an elevated PSA, known prostate adenocarcinoma. How do you approach a patient like this? What are you looking at? What kind of initial diagnostic workup do you do? And how are you starting off the discussion with your patients? Yeah, that's a great place to start. And so the information that you've mentioned is really uh, critical. And you guys know that. I think I've, I've been over this on this show or kind of in this series so far. So just to kind of recap that, things that we would use to risk classify this patient. So their PSA, like you mentioned, the uh, Gleason score, the percentage of positive cores, and then if their T-staging as well, which is really important. 
But that's pretty standard information. So some other things that, uh, aside from tests and imaging, which we'll talk about too, that, that we think about, and, and these are things that we really gather from just seeing the patient, but it's kind of nice to know before we see them too and before we go in the room. You know, obviously their medical comorbidities and kind of their life expectancy, right? As to whether or not this is someone we should really be very aggressive about or someone that might be on the other end of the spectrum where would be better for watchful waiting or active surveillance even if we think their life expectancy is pretty short. Additionally, their symptomatic burden, specifically their urinary symptomatic burden, is important for us to know. And so the way that we kind of frame the role of radiation for patients, specifically related to unfavorable intermediate risk disease and kind of in general too, radiation is really part of definitive curative therapy for cancer. And we radiate patients anywhere from favorable intermediate risk disease all the way up to metastatic palliation or treating per an oligometastatic paradigm with SBRT even. And so we're very fortunate, at least at UNC, to have a great multidisciplinary group with our urologist. And our paradigm, we tend, for patients that are higher risk, which I know that this patient is not too, we tend to treat more of those patients with radiation, actually. And our logic really there is we try to best estimate their risk of biochemical recurrence, right? And we say, so if a patient wants surgery, what's the risk of them having a biochemical recurrence or to the point where we would recommend eventually salvage radiation and ADT? And our goal is to get patients through this treatment and give them the best curative intent treatment while minimizing side effects and symptomatic burden. And so, you know, someone who has had surgery and is, then is getting radiation and ADT on top of that too, tends to be someone who is going to have lower side effect profile or symptoms. So for this patient, this is someone that we would probably lean towards treating with radiation too. Some other helpful information that's helpful for us as a PSMA pet, actually. I know that some places there are some struggles with insurance to get this scan approved, but more recently, um, we've really tried to incorporate this into patient care as often as we can. The data that continue to come out show that this scan is very sensitive. It's very specific, especially compared to what we would consider conventional conventional staging imaging for these patients, so referring to a, a standard CT scan and a bone scan. And in patients who are unfavorable intermediate risk too, the likelihood of, of you finding something on a CT or a bone scan is actually very, very low compared to a PSMA PET. And so that PSMA PET is some obvious information is it will help us rule out distant metastatic disease, uh, but it also gives us information about uh, disease within the pelvis too, if there are nodes that are there that are maybe questionable by conventional imaging and whether or not those are involved. And kind of going beyond that, there are actually some studies going on looking at boosting PSMA PET AVID nodes within the prostate too, which patients might derive a biochemical disease-free survival from doing that. But that's something that's under active investigation and not something that we tend to do off-study here at UNC. One other bit of information that can be helpful in our treatment planning is in a multiparametric MRI of the prostate. So one bit of information that's useful too is that can really give us a better idea and make us feel more confident about whether or not a patient has seminal vesicle invasion or extra prostatic extension. And so, you know, as you guys know, those are two things that are involved in the T staging and would make a patient at least T3 based on those. But specifically for radiation planning, we do, uh, at least here, tend to treat the proximal portion of the seminal vesicles. And if those are involved, we'll extend volumes in that area and treat the entire seminal vesicle at a margin around that if we really, truly think there's frank gross disease and invasion in that area. 
It also tells us where the disease is within the prostate. And I don't want to get too much into the radiation details, which we can here too, but depending on where we're pushing kind of hot spots and dose within the prostate, it's kind of nice to know where that disease is. For example, if there is disease that's abutting the capsule or, or looks like it's very close to where a typical margin would be for our target prescription volume, we might expand the planning target volume expansion there and really make sure we've got margin and are really treating that area if we're concerned about it. So those are some additional information and things that we look at when we're approaching a consult. Super, super critical. And and I think, you know, one of the things that is so important is life expectancy for these patients because we know that there's a risk of overtreatment for some patients with prostate cancer, right? We've got our PSA, we have the Gleason pattern, we have the extent of disease, but we really need to think about life expectancy and other comorbidities. So that's key that you mentioned. The second thing that we've kind of gone over with our surgeons too is this importance of the MRI and PSMA PET just to really get a good understanding of the extent of the disease. And particularly when we're thinking about radiation planning and what you guys do, that's good to know. You know, it's interesting about when you figure out your radiation field in terms of the seminal vesicle involvement and things like that, it is really critical to get detailed images. And so knowing that I think is really helpful because we, again, we see these patients after all of this is done or, you know, we might just refer. And so it's good to know what's happening outside that black box. The next question that I've got for you. So we've talked a little bit about e- the use of EBRT, external beam radiotherapy for these patients. So we've got this guy, he's got, anytime we have a patient with unfavorable intermediate risk disease, we got to do something. Active surveillance isn't preferred in that kind of a patient. So he's referred to you and let's say he talked to the urologist. He's like, I don't want that incontinence issue. Can you walk us through how you counsel a patient on the side effects of EBRT and the optimal patient selection for EBRT? What would make you not want to give that patient radiotherapy? So how we typically counsel side effects for radiation, just to kind of start at a very basic level, and this is kind of how I explain things to patients as well, is that radiation is a local therapy. You know, sure, there might be some kind of theoretical systemic effect that we're continuing to investigate, but how we think about the side effects, they tend to be focal things, aside from things that are more general like fatigue. And so for a patient with prostate cancer, we think about and kind of go through the different organ systems within the pelvis that we might affect. And we generally are going to group those things into three different categories, one being the the GI system and GI side effects. Second, and, and probably most common, frequent, and more importantly, the GU system and those side effects, and then sexual function or sexual dysfunction, rather. And how we counsel patients with side effects, I think, you know, one trial that can help us can really give us a lot of helpful information about these side effects versus a radical prostatectomy, too, is the PROTECT trial, which I think you guys have mentioned in in other episodes. It's a great study. It really affects how we practice. But as far as side effects for radiation, this depends on the kind of radiation we're giving, whether it's brachytherapy, SBRT, or standard external beam radiotherapy which within that there is conventional fractionation, which is falling more out of favor. And the more common approach is what we would consider moderately hypofractionated radiotherapy uh, within the external beam paradigm. And so patients will tend to have the most common and, and bothersome thing will probably be urinary frequency and nocturia. As you guys know, these patients often struggle with that up front before they've even started treatment. And that's something that if, if they're really bothered by now, that we will tell them that will get worse. It's something that they will tend to start to notice, say, the third week or so of treatment. It it might happen before that, but starts there. And these side effects are additive. 
So once they start, they start to get worse over the course of radiation therapy. And they tend to peak after the patient has finished, actually, um, a couple of weeks or so after they finished. And they'll slowly get better with time um, over the course of something measured in months. There are patients where their urinary function will return to baseline, but for some people, there are late long-term side effects um, and continued urinary frequency, nocturia, urgency uh, that can bother them for um, you know something on the measure measured in order of, of years after they've finished radiation. But that's not the common thing. We'll also counsel them on the risk of things related to the GI tract, and so most commonly, that's going to manifest in the form of diarrhea or loose stools. The rate of us causing sort of blood in the stool or any hematochesia is actually very low. I mean, we don't tend to cause just sort of abdominal pain and nausea, at least with prostate radiotherapy. That's certainly true in other, uh, for other cancers, uh, depending on what we're irradiating. And then there's sexual function. There um, are some data, and from PROTECT trial as well, and how radiation can affect erectile function, and there's some risk of us affecting that over time. Compared to surgery, it's not something that we will affect in the immediate sense as the patient is getting radiation, but it's something that might manifest later on after they've finished. Of course, this is all confounded and complicated by the patient using ADT and their libido and how that affects their sexual function too. But in terms of radiation, it's more of a mechanical issue and, and us affecting the nerves that are responsible for that part of the body. That makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the things that our surgeon was talking about is if a patient has really bad irritative bladder symptoms, then you know maybe prostatectomy might be a better solution for that patient. But Again, this is very individualized to these patients. And the PROTECT trial was so interesting in that we could look at, hey, what's the difference between active surveillance versus surgery versus radiation and get a good sense of those side effects. And we'll link that into our show notes. And we recommend all of our listeners look at it and really look at the adverse events, look at what the side effect profiles are looking like. As medical oncologists, we don't really deal with this as much, but it's still good for us to know what's happening to these patients. So you mentioned hypofractionation, and we've talked in previous episodes and fundamentals of radiation oncology. We have a total dose of radiation. We fractionate it, and we only radiate Monday through Friday because radiation oncologists got to play golf on the weekends, and uh, you know it's important. But hypofractionation generally means higher doses of radiation with less days of radiation, right? So tell me a little bit about how do you counsel patients on the time course of radiation, and tell me a little bit about this hypofractionation. In the grand scheme of radiation and radiation for prostate cancer, hypofractionation and, and what we would consider ultra-hypofractionation, which would is another way to say SBRT really, is something that is newer. Now, we do have long-term data for both of these things. And how we define that, essentially, we're delivering per less. That's kind of in the realm of conventional fractionation. And within that, if you as you decrease the amount we're delivering per day, that would be considered hyperfractionation. So for hypofractionation, moderately hypofractionated th radiation therapy is something that's going to be greater than that two gray per day, but it's not SBRT. So for example, the regimen that we prescribe at UNC, there's not, we acknowledge there's not one right answer or prescription for this. If you look at the NCCN guidelines, for example, of all of the moderate hypofrac studies, they all use something that's similar. Um, some can be a little bit different too, but we prescribe 70 gray to the target volume and 28 fractions. And if we're treating the public lymph nodes, we prescribe 5,040 centigrade. And we do this in something called a simultaneous integrated boost. So the public lymph nodes are actually receiving a dose that would be considered conventional fractionation because it's still with, under that two gray per day limit. But the prostate and the surrounding area that is our target volume is getting a dose to the tire. Now, what is the main advantage for doing this? It's a very simple answer. Don't overthink it. It's because the patient doesn't have to come in as much. The treatment duration is shorter versus being the, the kind of the old school two months of therapy. 
the 28 fractions, it's going to be five and a half weeks. We're not suggesting that the moderate hypofractionated approach leads to better oncologic control and outcomes. The studies really wanted to prove that it's the same or not inferior and that the side effect profile is similar enough where we think it's a good trade-off to maybe tolerate side effects that are slightly more intense over a shorter period of time with the patient gaining fewer weeks of treatment essentially. And that's how we counsel patients on this. The side effects are very similar. We do have good long-term data showing that too. And it is now kind of the recommended approach in CCN guidelines and many other places. One other regimen you might hear that's still considered moderate hypofractionation is 60 gray and 20 fractions. So again, 20 versus 28, it's still shorter. That regimen is most commonly cited studies, probably the CHIP study uh, that came out of the UK, something they more commonly use in that part of the world. And some institutions uh, within the United States use it as well. It can be harder to meet the dose constraints depending on what dose constraints you are using. And I think at least here in some places, we tend to be a little more conservative to really make sure we're not worsening toxicity for these patients. And that's part of the reason why we more commonly use the 70 gray and 28 fractions makes a whole lot of sense. And patient quality of life is really, really important. Distance to a radiation facility is also really important. That's why when we talk to our surgeon, maybe prostatectomy, it's one and done sort of thing. Radiation, you have to still come back. And that's another patient factor. But good to know that we're still able to tolerate the toxicity profile and reduce the amount of times the patient has to come in. And that's what I love about radiation oncology, that we need to do more in medical oncology, is dose optimization, looking at patient quality of life. And I think a lot of the radiation literature does a very good job at doing that, which is critically important. You know, Sometimes we, we give radiation a bad name. It actually has really good utility and is curative for a lot of these patients, right? I mean, you get the treatment, you're done. It's nice in that sense. So this use of EBRT, we're talking, you know, unfavorable, intermediate, higher-risk patients, but let's talk about a low-risk patient. So let's say we have, have a patient come in with low-risk prostate cancer. Maybe they got a, a Gleason pattern of 3 plus 3 equals 6. They have a lower PSA. The guy still says, hey, I've got prostate cancer, and I want to take care of this thing. I don't want to do surgery. But, Doc, I heard something about this brachytherapy idea. And we do see some patients who got brachytherapy. Can you tell me a little bit about what is brachytherapy? It's these radiation seeds. How do they come out? Which patients are you giving this to? And what's the difference in side effect, side effect profile for this therapy? So that's something that we're starting to see less of, at least for the indication of prostate cancer. Like you mentioned, you know, a patient with low-risk disease with our practice patterns, we would really push for active surveillance also. And I think kind of the number that we quote patients to is that about half the patients in that study are going to end up needing some form of definitive therapy. Uh, so they'll convert over by, by, by PSA and biopsy when they're on that study. But say if it's somebody where really is pushing for treatment of low-risk disease or if there's someone who just doesn't want the biopsies but still wants to do something about it, brachytherapy is an option. A funny sort of side note about brachytherapy, this has happened to me for two people. I don't know if it's the way I pronounce this word, but I've mentioned this to people. One person was in medicine, not in oncology, a different field. Another person wasn't, but they thought I was saying reiki therapy when I mentioned this. I said, I've got like a brachytherapy procedure tomorrow. And the conversation actually went on for a little bit. And they, the person was like, so you guys do energy healing? And in my mind, I'm like, well, technically radiation is energy healing. I mean, but we don't really call it that. But if you want to call it that, sure. sure. Spoken from a true radiation oncologist, it's, you know, it's all about energy healing. It's the feng shui, right? Right. So and they were like, oh, so this is really like a full service kind of alternative uh, medicine style you guys practice. And it's like, I don't, I don't know that I would call it that. It's like pretty, pretty mainstream thing. Like it's not all over the world. 
And so this kind of funny conversation went back and forth before we finally realized that it was brachytherapy and, and not Reiki therapy or healing. But brachy really means sort of short therapy. So the idea of this versus external beam, we're aiming x-rays at the patient who enter the patient from their skin outside of them and pass through, deliver dose and exit. For brachy, we're actually implanting radioactive materials, um, metal isotopes within the patient in the tumor or the target volume in order to deliver dose. Now, what's kind of the very basic reason why we would do something like this is because we can avoid delivering radiation to surrounding organs, essentially. So for prostate cancer, for brachytherapy, we would be implanting radioactive source within the prostate, treating the entire prostate in a small area around the prostate, just sort of a standard margin. There are two different ways to do this. Um, the big kind of classification would be based on the dose rate that we're delivering. So it's considered high dose rate or low dose rate brachytherapy. The biggest difference in terms of the practical sort of sense of this is that there's some thought and some data that the high dose rate version actually the toxicity is better. Part of the reason for that is, is how we do the planning. And so in low-dose rate brachytherapy, we're actually implanting a radioactive sort of seed, we call it. It's a metal isotope. At UNC, we use iodine-125. And we leave those seeds in the prostate indefinitely, actually. They deposit their dose over a certain amount of time. I, I believe the half-life for I-125 is about 60 days, but it's been a little while since I've taken my physics boards. But So they deliver their dose, and they stay in there. Versus high-dose rate brachytherapy, we're actually, we have something called an afterloader that has the radioactive source inside of it. It's sort of the size of like a little uh, R2-D2 machine kind of thing is what we call it. But we plan the treatment as the patient is coming down for therapy. Insert those catheters and with our physicist, we'll sort of essentially tell this afterloader to allow the radioactive source, in this case it would be iridium, and dwell in each of these positions where the needles or seeds are placed within the prostate and deliver the dose that way. So the source actually comes out in high-dose rate brachytherapy. Now, one kind of unique way, sort of a hybrid model and way that we have done it at UNC before, is instead of pre-planning how we want the seeds to be placed for low-dose rate brachytherapy, we actually active plan it here at UNC. The advantage of that is because when the patient comes in, their anatomy might be a little bit different than what we'd see on the ultrasound using a, a transrectal ultrasound probe versus a scan they would have up front to get these seeds kind of pre-planned. So for that reason, yeah, the side effects might be a little bit different too and, and potentially better with high-dose rate brachytherapy according to the data, but um, the planning techniques are variable and that's something to take into account. So, you know, like you mentioned, this is a technique that is technically curative for low-risk and favorable intermediate-risk prostate cancer. We tend not to use it as much here because of the active surveillance paradigm, and we tend to treat favorable intermediate risk disease with SBRT at UNC. Now, it is an option to use. The side effect profile can be a little more intense, and in patients that have urinary side effects or very disease where we're concerned about an obstruction, obstructing their urinary flow, we're a little more hesitant and concerned about doing brachytherapy for that reason. They're patients with very large prostates, and so if there's more volume, some signs of maybe of obstructive physiology there anyway. The swelling from the radiation, swelling from actually physically placing those needles into the prostate. You know, there are lots of these needles we'll, we'll place through a transperineal approach. Can make us concerned for obstruction. Now, the rate of that happening is pretty low, albeit in pretty well-selected patients too. The other advantage of this is it's a one-day procedure and it's done. So it's similar to, to surgery in that regard where a patient does not have to come in for repeat treatments. With brachytherapy, there are some fractionation schemes where they might come in for a second treatment with high-dose rate, but for the low-dose rate approach, it's one session and they're done doing that.
I think that's so important for me to understand. We do see patients who had brachytherapy, now they got biochemical recurrence, or now they have metastatic disease, things like that. And in my head, I'm always wondering, what is brachytherapy? I kind of get it, but I really don't get it. So this is, it's really helpful to just understand, hey, this is the fundamental concept of that. And for everybody to know, active surveillance is really important. That PROTECT trial, even, you know, when we're looking at active surveillance versus doing something, there's a bunch of patients, in terms of your long-term, are you living better, living longer? Probably no difference between any of these approaches that you choose for a lot of these patients, and the risk of overtreatment's high. So I like that that paradigm that you just talked about. Last sort of couple questions I want to do before we close out. So last localized question, then I'll get into a couple of metastatic questions. So for the last localized question, we get a ton of patients who say, hey, doc, you know, I heard about this proton therapy, this proton therapy. It's new. It's good. It's not photons. And man, I want that one. So can you tell us a little bit about, and we know there's very limited data here, but a patient comes to you and they say, hey, doc, I want the protons. How do you counsel them? What are you telling them? Are the side effects better or is there just not enough data to tell? That's a very common question we get, and UNC in the Triangle part of North Carolina is actually an area that does not have a proton center currently. They're in the process of getting one, but despite that, we still have patients that come in and ask for it. At centers that do have protons, patients ask for it even more for all kinds of cancers. It's something that is heavily advertised, which is sort of a unique thing within radiation oncology. A lot of our you know, other kinds of modalities, if you want to talk about SBRT or say IMRT or brachytherapy, it's not something that you'll see on a billboard necessarily. Before we get into that, I just wanted to mention one other thing about brachytherapy, another indication that we've seen it used before, is for a boost in high-risk disease. A boost meaning delivering extra radiation to the target volume, in this case, the prostate. For some further reading, one trial that kind of the best level of evidence that we have for that is called the ASCEND-RT trial. And that trial essentially showed a disease-free, a biochemical disease-free survival benefit as the benefit of boosting the prostate in this case. But it's not without toxicity. It's not without its own risks. The rate of GU toxicity is going to be higher for patients that have a brachytherapy boost. But that's just one other indication outside of the low and favorable intermediate risk paradigm that brachytherapy is used. So back to proton therapy. So you're right. There are not good data suggesting that the side effect profile of proton therapy for prostate cancer is better. Despite that, patients do often ask about it. And to kind of get into a little bit of the science and the physics for our listeners and readers that might not know why proton therapy might be better, basically with X-ray therapy, which is your standard kind of workhorse radiation therapy, there's electrons too, but that's sort of a separate thing, not something that we use in prostate cancer. The X-ray will enter the patient, deliver its dose, and exit the patient. With protons, we don't tend to think about them doing that. They will enter the patient deposit their dose, most of their dose, over a narrow area called the Bragg Peak. And this is the theoretical reason why the side effect profile might be better, because there is less of this sort of what we refer to as kind of spillover, low-dose radiation that's a result of doing external beam, intensity-modulated radiotherapy that you're just, you can't get rid of without treating the target volume or for treating the target volume to your prescription dose. So there's less of that. Now, does that translate to a clinically meaningful impact in toxicity reduction? It hasn't been shown yet for prostate cancer. There are trials studying this. There is certainly a place for protons and and areas, some areas that come to mind that are more obvious indications for pediatric tumors. We're really trying to limit that low-dose spill and craniospinal radiation or or tumors inside of the, the cranium. Situations of re-irradiation and tumors that are are head and neck tumors that are close to other critical organs, optic structures, other nervous uh, structures that we really want to limit that radiation dose to. 
So proton therapy is going to limit that surrounding dose. Now, there is also some uncertainty with the Braga peak and, and where that dose is actually being deposited. So as it relates to prostate cancer, that area of concern is going to be the prostate-rectal interface. The rectum, we use a, a number of dose constraints. So when we're planning this treatment for X-ray radiation and proton radiation, tell the planners in our planning software, limit you know this amount of the rectum to this dose and so on. So the computer knows we want to limit that dose. Now, there's going to be a little bit of uncertainty about where that dose is with proton therapy. And so there are some ways that we can get around that, depending on the modeling that we use. And there's also things called space or, or berry gel, which is essentially a sort of gel that we implant between the rectum and the prostate to push the rectum and prostate further away from each other. So when we use our margin, there's less rectum getting radiation dose is, is the simple idea. And we use that for x-ray therapy, too. That's something that you can use in prostate to get around that. I think that sort of the concept of using protons in this space is interesting because regardless of what these studies show, it's sort of a big deal if they're positive or negative, right? Because these are these are very expensive centers and machines to build and it is a big cost on the health system and sort of paying for protons is a lot more expensive and, and uses a lot more resources than, than x-ray therapy. And so not just from a financial aspect, but if we're recommending protons, we really want to make sure it's worth it if we're telling a patient, you should pack up your bags, go to the city that has protons spend money to do that, travel there, leave your home because it, it's worth it. But if they're negative, you know, we've had a lot of centers that have invested money in building these centers and, and there's no reason to use it for prostate, which is one of the more common things we treat in radiation oncology. Conversely, if they're positive discussions of, should I be traveling to these centers? Should patients be doing that to get their radiation? So I think it's an interesting thing and looking forward to the results of these studies. There are all sorts of other proton studies going on in other primary disease sites that they're trying to answer this question. I think time will tell here. And from medical oncologists, who am I to talk about cost-effective healthcare? You know, we there was the ENACT trial, active surveillance versus enzalutamide for a year, which is, in my opinion, absolutely ridiculous. Like, you're taking a pill to suppress your doing ADT, basically, right? And it's like, we want to prevent radiation or surgery. And wh what are we doing here? What exactly are we doing here? Spending a million dollars, over a million dollars, to save one patient, potentially, from getting radiation therapy or surgery. And, and we've talked to our surgeon, we've now talked to radiation oncologists. Yes, there's side effects, but I mean, $1.5 million or so on a pill that doesn't come without its own side effects. Is that worth it? What are we doing? And when we think about proton therapy, what's the cost to the system, right? $1 that we're spending on proton facilities is $1 less to giving kids healthy food. I don't know. There's just so many things that are critically important with this. And it's good to hear that we have data coming but hey, this is expensive, and I'm very interested in what's going to happen with the field with proton therapy. So let's shift gears. Just one question about metastatic disease, actually. And really, for me, I have a lot of patients in my clinic who have metastatic prostate cancer, bone-only disease, and they got a painful bone met somewhere. And I say, hey, radiation. the beauty of radiation oncology is you guys make people feel better. It's true, right? You know, you have some side effects, but particularly in the metastatic setting and with bone disease, you make people take away the pain, make them feel better. Can you walk me through the process, the number of fractions, how it works for palliative radiation for a bone metastasis in prostate cancer? That's something that we, we do a lot, not just for prostate cancer, but painful bone mets and, and all sorts of primary tumors. I think the unique thing about prostate cancer in that space is really determining if is this a patient that we would consider to be oligometastatic and we're trying to be more aggressive and doing SBRT to these bone mets? Are they getting systemic therapy? Or is this somebody that has really uncontrolled disease, many sites of disease, high volume, high burden of disease, and the goal is simply palliation, not necessarily disease control? 
So to talk about sort of the latter aspect of that, someone with a high volume of disease for strictly palliation. So the doses that we use are a lot lower than definitive doses for prostate cancer or what we would consider an ablative dose of SBRT for, say, an early stage lung cancer. Because the goal is to not cause side effects if we can avoid it and still improve the pain. So three of probably the most common dose and fractionation schemes that you'll hear for this the oldest and maybe best studied is 30 gray and 10 fractions. There's a shorter regimen of 20 gray and 5 fractions. And something that's becoming more common and probably the most commonly used thing in Europe is 8 gray and a single fraction. Now, there are, there are studies with a high level of evidence comparing all these things. And the takeaway message is that for pain relief, not talking about cord compression or an area that you want a little more control or you're concerned about this tumor growing and affecting some nearby structure, strictly for pain relief from bone mats, eight gray times one is still very good, but there's a slightly higher increased risk of that patient having repeat pain and needing to have radiation again using the same regimen of eight gray times one. And so that's another thing too. There's re-irradiation is kind of a separate topic, but just because we've irradiated one area before does not always mean that we can't do it again. Depends on indication, the dose they received, side effects the patient's willing to tolerate. But for palliative radiation, eight gray times one, we can most certainly radiate that bone med again if we need to. The really nice thing about it is, again, it's obvious. It's a single fraction treatment. You have a patient that has uncontrolled disease with a short life expectancy, and you're trying to minimize time in the hospital, time in our clinic. So instead of spending two weeks here, we can just do it in one day, and they can go home and still have a pretty high chance of having good pain relief. Now, for patients that have bony disease in the spine, and this is a situation of cord compression, that's sort of a different paradigm and something that, you know, obviously surgery is a big component of that, but we'll tend to prescribe uh, 30 gray and uh, and 10 fractions there instead of the 8 gray times 1, just to have a little bit uh, higher dose and, and better disease control. The SBRT and kind of oligometastatic paradigm is something that we treat a lot of here too. And if it's a patient, say, for example, that has, say, one site of disease and it's in a pelvic bone, and it's someone who is otherwise very healthy, very active, long life expectancy, we'll still manage them under a definitive paradigm and SBRT, that bone map. For other patients that have had known disease and kind of a longer disease history, we still SBRT that. And the definition of oligometastatic disease depends on the study you look at, really, but we generally think about five or fewer METs. The doses of SBRT we use for that are still much higher than our standard palliative doses, and the idea is to offer disease control, but they're not as high, and they're not necessarily what we would consider to be an ablative radiation dose for like an early-stage lung cancer, for example. And so those doses are lower, but the side effects can be a little bit worse. So we counsel patients, depending on where this is, radiation can actually increase your risk of, of bone fracture. And the way we kind of explain it is if this bone met is, say, untreated, and continues to grow. There are certain criteria we look at, but the main things are, is this a, say, a lytic lesion? Is it involving the cortex? How much of the bone cortex in a load-bearing bone is it involving? Is it in a near joint space near the acetabulum that carries a lot of the body's weight? And what's their risk of having a real pathologic fracture? And so radiation is kind of going to cap that risk and prevent it from growing there, but there's still a little bit of an added risk of fracture from SBRT. As far as doing SBRT in an extremity, the side effect profile is, is pretty favorable just because there aren't a lot of other kind of vital organs in that part of the body that we're worried about hurting with the SBRT. One of the more common things we look at and try to avoid is bowel toxicity because that we can really harm someone from delivering too much radiation dose to their bowel, so their bladder and other parts uh, of the body that, we, that might sort of be in the way, if you will, of SBRTing a bone met. 
really helpful to know because, you know, when I see a patient and I'm referring them to you, and I think a lot of medical oncologists struggle with this, maybe it's just me and I'm cool with that. I'm willing to say that, but it's hard for me to know, hey, you know, it's good to know there's this option for a single dose, eight grays, and that's really big for a lot of these patients. And if not, 10 fractions is really, it's really not that long. That's really not a lot. And I think concept of doing this referral, letting your radiation oncologist even consider re-irradiation, all of those things are critically important for our patients. We're looking at the long game here, right, for a lot of these patients with metastatic prostate cancer. So really helpful to go through that. This was a great episode, Jacob. I appreciate you being here and doing this for us. I'll let you close out with what are some uh, words of wisdom that you'd like to give the listeners uh, after our discussion today? Radiation is not always this sort of antiquated toxic modality. I think uh, Vivek and I are share some, some thoughts in that regard and that it's the variety of doses that we use and we can re-radiate patients and it's not something that's going to always cause really significant toxicity that we know from, say, the old studies for, for Hodgkin lymphoma and, and old mantle fields, for example, that we always kind of think about. But that's sort of a thing. That's not something we do anymore. And um, it's a modality that helps a lot of people, whether it's definitive management with ADT for prostate cancer or simply trying to improve someone's pain and kind of get them off opioids for widespread metastatic disease. So, you know, happy to have you guys keep us in mind and look forward to discussing in the future. Thanks a lot for being here. And I think that's a beautiful way to end this is that your radiation oncologist is your friend, your your surgical oncologist is your friend. We should all work together to help these patients. One is not better than another. They're all good in different aspects. It's a risk benefit. And prostate cancer is a perfect example of that. So with that, I'll have our listeners go. I think we're recording this right before Christmas, so happy holidays, everybody. But this will release after that. But everybody have a good day, and thanks for joining us. Our next episode will be more about systemic therapy and prostate cancer.